0: Revelation chapter 14, and if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and uh, the ushers will drop one off to you so you can follow along with us in our Bible study. Now in case you're joining us tonight for the first time, I just want to tell you that the book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand. It's the only book in the Bible that comes with the outline, a table of contents, if you would, right in the first chapter of the book. Chapter 1, verse 19, John is told to write, first of all, the things which he had seen, past tense. And so, chapter 1 is part 1, the things which John had seen, Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, and glorified. Then he's told to write, number 2, the things which are, present tense. And so, chapters 2 and 3, the church age, seven letters to seven churches, which apply to any church, every church that exists throughout all of church history, but that also speak of the seven in particular divisions of church history as we have seen it unfold from our perspective historically. And then John is told to write the things which shall be after this, future tense. And so chapter 4 through the end of the book, chapter 4 verse 1, starting with the phrase after this, same thing that he is told to write with the things which shall be. Chapters 4 and 5, the church in heaven. The church age is complete. The rapture takes place. Jesus comes for his church. We're caught up and to meet the the Lord with the air. And there we will be with him for seven years in heaven. A wedding feast for a seven-year period of time. A party, a banquet, if you would. Meanwhile, at the same time, we're in heaven. On earth, Revelation chapters 6 through 19 is a time of tribulation, the great tribulation. Seven years where God will pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting, sinful world. And it's in the middle of that period of time known as the tribulation that we find ourselves when we come to chapter 14 here in the book of Revelation. The first Series of judgments, the seals that sealed the scroll, the title deed to the earth, they have all been opened and the corresponding judgments have been poured out. The seals followed by seven trumpets, seven angels to each one given a trumpet and as they sound their trumpet, there is a judgment poured out on planet earth. The, the, you know, the seven trumpets have now been completed. And now we're in that interim, that middle point, three and a half years into the tribulation. And now we have seen in our last study, Antichrist, this one world ruler that will come in through flatteries and will deceive all of the people that live upon the earth. A man who is empowered and given his authority by Satan himself. He comes to the fullness of his power there in our study that we saw last week in chapter 13. His kingdom will rise to its fullness. And for the last three and a half years of this tribulation time, he will have full control and full reign over everything that happens on planet Earth. And the heaviest of God's plagues will be poured out in the seven bowls that we will see when we come to chapter 16. Now, in the 11th chapter of Genesis, all the way back in the first days of man's dwelling upon the earth, We have the story there of Babylon, led by a man whose name was Nimrod, a mighty hunter against the Lord. And in that chapter, that story of that tower that they built there in the plains of Shinar, there's a perfect picture of what Antichrist's kingdom will be. One world that's united in rebellion against God. One language, all with one accord, one mind seeking to do one thing a unified religious and commercial system. And just as God said there in Genesis chapter 11, that nothing will be impossible to them, so also it will be in the day of man when Antichrist and his kingdom come into the fullness of its power. Now in Genesis 11, the plan was foiled and the purpose was delayed, but it was never abandoned. For all of the time that has passed of man's existence since that day when the tower was abandoned, when the languages were confounded, and the people moved apart, Satan's agenda, his plan, and his purpose in moving Nimrod to establish that order was never abandoned in his heart. And we saw in our study last week what it will look like when that plan finally comes together when the world is truly united in that rebellion against god we also saw in our study last week in verse 7 of chapter 13 that to him was given the the, the, the ability the authority to make war with the saints and to overcome them and also in verse 15 it tells us that any who refuse the mark of the beast will be killed And so essentially, by the time we come to chapter 14 of the book of Revelation, the lamp of God's witness in the world is completely snuffed out. As we'll see in the opening verses of this chapter, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that were sealed and sent to preach, by this time they are martyred and slain. We see them in heaven in the opening verses here in chapter 14. Those who refuse to take the mark of the beast, they will be slain, whether it be simply paranoia that keeps them from receiving that mark, whatever it is, or whether it be because they accepted Christ after the rapture or through the testimony of those witnesses, they will either be slain or exiled, and essentially the lamp of God's light on planet Earth will be snuffed out almost completely. And so we enter into chapter 14, and John says, I looked... And lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand having his father's name written in their foreheads. Now back in chapter 7 when John saw the four angels that were about to unleash the four winds of God's wrath upon the earth, he observed as the angels were told that a voice from heaven told them to wait Until the servants of God were sealed in their forehead. And John tells us right there in chapter 7 verse 4 that he heard the number of them that were sealed. And that there were sealed 144,000 of all of the children of Israel. And here we find out just exactly what that seal is. It tells us that they had his father's name written in their foreheads. That they're sealed by the name of God. They were stamped that they belonged to him. Set apart for his services and protected divinely from anything that can happen to them. Until, of course, Antichrist is given authority to overcome them. His father's name written in their forehead. Interesting, isn't it, that in the last chapter we saw that Antichrist will also have a seal. And that the number of his name will be written to seal the eternal fate of those that give their allegiance and their worship to the beast. But notice here that in chapter 7, there was 144,000 that were sealed. And here in chapter 14, there are 144,000 with the lamb standing upon the Mount Zion. Jesus said, of all that are given to me, I will lose none. It's comforting to me that it doesn't say that there was hundred and 43,999, but that all those that were sealed and set apart for God's purpose made it. God was able to do that which he promised. What comforts me about that is that the Bible says that you and I, that we are also sealed by God. The first chapter of Ephesians, verses 12 through 14, Paul writes and he says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom also you trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest or the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. That at the point when we believed, trusted in Christ, committed our lives to him and received the gift of his salvation, the Bible says that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit of his promise. That that seal that's been placed upon us is the down payment, if you would, the guarantee that God is going to redeem that which he has already paid for. The seal, speaking of it, whether it be from a divine standpoint, the seal of God, or whether it would be the seal of a king in the Old Testament, the seal implies, first of all, possession. The fact that we've been sealed by his spirit, claimed, if you would, purchased, means that we belong to him. The Bible says that we are not our own, that we've been bought with a price. The Bible says that we've been purchased, not with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, that he purchased us and that he has written his name upon us and that he has claimed the right, that we belong to him. We are his possession, his riches, his treasure. It also implies authority. The signet or the seal that a king or a deity would have would be their initials in the seal of their ring. And in the seal of God's name or by the seal of his spirit, it speaks of the authority that he possesses and that he carries over us, but that he also commits to us as his ambassadors, those that would carry and herald his message to a lost world. And his seal also implies, and maybe most importantly, protection that we are protected, nothing can harm us as long as we are under the divine protection that God has for our lives. First Peter chapter 1, verse 5 talks about how we are kept by the power of God awaiting the salvation that he has purchased us for. We're kept by his power. We're sealed with that spirit of promise that nothing can come to us, nothing can harm us, Because we've been sealed by God. And here we see these that have been sealed. And we see that they also were redeemed. That they made it. The comforting thing, isn't it? The glory that awaits us. He says, and I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters. And as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Now, John tells us here that these 144,000, that they have their own specific song because they have their own specific testimony and because they are their own specific group. No one else can sing the song that they sing because nobody knows what they know. Nobody has trafficked where they traffic. It's interesting to me that as we read in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, the angels have their own song that they sing before the Lord. It tells us there, their song is holy, 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 Lord God almighty, which was and is and is to come. In chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, we see that the church has a song. And as you read the lyrics, you realize that only the church is able to sing that song as they sing of how they have been redeemed from every tribe, tongue, and nation from among men. A song that only the church can sing. In uh, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 10, the tribulation saints, those that are saved during the period of the great tribulation, that they have a song. Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb." And here as we come to chapter 14, we hear that these 144,000, that they also have a song that no one else can sing, that it's their song. You know, each of us, we also have a song, don't we? The way God reached into our lives at the unexpected moment and the way that he saved us and revealed himself to us in a way that's so unique and so individual, in a way that no one else can sing. Did you know that your story, your testimony, how God reached you, that that carries great value. Sometimes people think that they wish they had someone else's song, someone else's testimony. We hear about people that, you know, did all kinds of drugs or, you know, lived a certain type of lifestyle and how they had this dramatic experience, how God reached into their life. And we think, well, my story isn't very dramatic, how God reached me, you know, or something. But the way God reached you, it was you that he reached. He sought you out like the lamb that was missing, and he found you. And there's a song in our heart that we sing because of what he has done for us. And here, these have a song, and we don't even get to hear it. We hear everyone else's song. We don't get to hear their song. But it says that these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now when we studied chapter 7 and we first met this group of people, these 144,000 that were there, We talked about the various groups that lay claim to actually being this 144,000. Of course, you're very familiar with the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, the Watchtower Society. And they, of course, claim that they have exclusive rights to being called this 144,000. The Scientologists also believe that they have the right Herbert W. Armstrong years ago, and the sons of God, and and, and, you know, these these groups kind of come and go that lay claim to this, that they say that they are the 144,000. Well, the groups that do that, it's these verses that we see here in chapter 14 that they use to kind of support their claim that they're the only 144,000 that actually make it to heaven where it says that these were redeemed from among men unto God, they say, well, that means that there are only 144,000 that are redeemed among men unto God. But what they fail to recognize as they make these ridiculous claims is the various divisions in Scripture between people groups that we meet, you know, as we go through the Bible. In the Old Testament, God dealt specifically and exclusively with the nation of israel they were their own people group that god set apart the descendants of abraham isaac and jacob the 12 tribes that he revealed scripture to truth that gave us the bible through whom he brought messiah the savior that came to be a light even unto the gentiles god dealt and worked through the nation of israel when Jesus was speaking to his disciples about John the Baptist, who, you know, of course was the forerunner for Jesus, the one, the voice calling in the wilderness saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 13, he said that all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. He basically essentially says that this group that's called Israel, this exclusive group of people that were to bring forth Messiah into the world, the law, Moses, and the prophets, all prophesied until John. And he includes John the Baptist in that group that is labeled as Israel. And the fact that John the Baptist was martyred prior to the crucifixion of Christ puts him in that group. He was not a part of the church. The church had not yet been formed when John passed away. And so Jesus includes John in that group of people, the church. Now, John the Baptist himself said in John chapter 3, verse 28, he said this. He said, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And what John is saying, declaring from his own mouth the voice of prophecy, He's saying, listen, I am not the bride, neither am I the bridegroom, but rather I am the friend of the bridegroom, and this is my joy, and therein do I rejoice. And then he finishes it by saying, he must increase, and I must decrease. Now, he uses this illustration of a Hebrew wedding, the bridegroom and the bride. And of course, we know that Ephesians chapter 5, throughout the whole New Testament, it's the church that is called the bride of Christ. That you and I have the right to be called that. And John says, listen, that's not me. I am neither the bride nor the bridegroom, but I am the friend of the bridegroom. And in this Hebrew wedding tradition, the wedding party would, would be, you know, consist of the bride and the groom that would be carried in the carriage of the caravan. And that the friends of the bridegroom, those that were in the wedding party, would follow the procession as it would go through the town and, and, you know, make their way to the father's house where the place would be prepared for the son and his bride to start their new lives together. It was the friend of the bridegroom that would follow the procession and their joy would be in the, you know, their friendship, their relationship to the bride. Now, John says, who is Israel and the prophets, he says, I am the friend of the bridegroom. And so, therefore, his place is to be a follower of the procession, the follower of the Lamb. It's interesting to me that here in Revelation, back in chapter 14, it tells us that these are those that follow the Lamb. It isn't that they're the only 144,000 that are in heaven, but they are a very specific group of people that are in heaven that serve a very specific purpose, the friend of the bridegroom. These are lumped in with the people of Israel that are there. The first fruits of the tribulation saints unto God, even as it says there. And it says that in their mouths was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. That's an incredible thing to have God say about you, isn't it? That you are without fault before his throne. It makes me joy because the Bible says that you and I will be presented before his throne without fault. Jude chapter 24, it says, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. The Bible talks about Jacob, and at one point in his life, it, you know, it says how God testifies and says that Jacob is found faultless before me. And that's great, because when you look at Jacob's life, he was a conniver. I mean, he was one who stumbled. He wrestled with God. He was self-willed, you know. He, he, he was nothing of what Abraham, even his grandfather was, and yet God can look at him, and because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and the salvation that we've received as a gift by the faith that we have in Jesus Christ, his son, God can present us faultless before his throne. And just as these are there presented without fault before the throne of God, so also we have that same privilege as the church that he looks at us through the lens of the blood of his son and he sees us absolutely without fault before him. Well, John goes on and he writes in verse 6, it says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Now in verses 6 through 12, as we work our way through these verses, we are going to see three angels. These are not Angels that blew the trumpets, and they are not the angels that will pour out the vials, but these are three separate angels that we will see here in these verses. And the first one, John tells us there, flies through the heavens, proclaiming the everlasting gospel to those that are yet remaining still alive on planet Earth. Now, when Jesus spoke about the end of the world, and by now, I hope you're all very familiar with Matthew chapter 24 that chapter where the disciples said, what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them and he gave them that three-point sermon, the end times as it relates to the nations, the end times as it relates to the Jews, and the end times as it relates to the church, as he spoke to them of all the things that would be in the last days concerning his coming. And in verse 14, he said, To his disciples that this gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, will be preached unto all nations, and then the end will come. And he even spoke of it in context of it being during the tribulation period. Now many have taken the position that that verse indicates that Jesus won't come back until everybody has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That until the church can mobilize and get off its lazy bottom, so to speak, and get out there and make sure that the whole world has heard that Jesus cannot come back until that's happened. Well, nowhere in the Bible does it say that it was the church's responsibility to fulfill that task. First of all, during the tribulation period, there's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists whose whole life is going to be dedicated to carrying this witness to those that remain on planet Earth. Second of all, there will be two witnesses that we saw back in chapter 12, most likely Moses and Elijah. And it implies very clearly there that the whole world will hear their witness as they rejoice at the martyrdom of those two and send gifts one to another. They'll hear the message. They will know what their testimony is as the whole world is familiar with the gospel. And then it tells us here at this point that there will be an angel that will fly through the heavens declaring the everlasting gospel to those that dwell upon the earth. The whole world will hear the gospel. And nowhere does it say that it's the church's, now it is the church's responsibility to preach. Jesus said that a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Therefore, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. But it is amazing to me that as time goes on, it isn't getting stronger, that light, but rather it's growing dimmer. Many of the churches around the country are pulling back on their missions programs. Many of those that had committed themselves to lives in the mission field are abandoning their place in the mission field and leaving because of the darkness of the hour and the danger of the day. But it isn't the church's responsibility. Well, it is. But it isn't contingent upon the church's completion of the task in order for Jesus to come back. There will be an angel that will fly through the heavens declaring the everlasting gospel to those that live upon the earth. But isn't it interesting that here, when there's almost no witness left that can come through the the, the mouth of a man, that then God will intervene and use an angel to do it? The 144,000 at this time are slain. The two witnesses have been slain. The church has been removed. The lamp of God's truth has been snuffed out almost completely. And here yet, God still sends an angel to proclaim the everlasting gospel. To me, I count it as a warning and a privilege. Because God wants to use us. When we get to the end of the book of Revelation, it says, "Whoever whosoever will, let him come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And then it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And we know who the spirit is. Who is the bride? The church. And we have this glorious privilege to declare and proclaim this gospel that has been given to us that we have been saved by. And God is willing and told us that he wants to use us to be the instruments whereby he reaches a lost world. We have that privilege. But if we don't, God will raise up someone else. And if they don't, God will send an angel. But we miss out on that great privilege that we might have to be instruments in the hand of God that he would use to reach someone who's lost. And boy, is that an addictive thing to bring someone from death into life, and to see the change and the transformation take place within them. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he talked about the household of Stephanus and he said that they have addicted themselves to the ministry. And boy, is it an addicting thing to be used as an instrument in the hand of God, and how his spirit can flow through you. But when there is no one left, there will be an angel that will fly through the sky preaching the gospel. Now, that angel is not going to be very productive, But nevertheless, he will be an encouragement to those that are left that didn't take the mark and also to those Jews that are exiled and being kept in Petra or Petra or in that place where God has prepared for them. We know that this is the case because in verse 7, it tells us that the angel said with a loud voice, his message was, fear God. And give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Fear God, he says. Give glory to him for the hour of his judgment comes. And then he says, worship God. The message that this angel proclaims to those that remain upon planet earth is worship God. Let your devotion and your life be given to him. Now that's significant because in verse 8, the second angel comes. In the message of the second angel, it says there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, because of what happened in Babylon in chapter 8 of, I mean, in chapter 11 of Genesis there that we talked about earlier in the study, Babylon as a city, as an entity, as a symbol, becomes a picture of false religions and pagan deities throughout the Bible. Anytime you hear about Babylon, the connotation, the implication is false gods or false religion. All of the false deities or pagan idols that are worshipped in the world somehow have their origination there in Babylon. Simiramis and Tammuz and the offspring that they have, the goddess of fertility and Ashtaroth and, you know, all of these pagan things, the worship of sex and the worship of money and the worship of pleasure and the worship of self and the worship of things, possessions. All has its origination there in Babylon. And by using this word fornication there at the end of the verse where he says that the the, the idols of Babylon have caused all nations to be drunk with the wine of the wrath of her fornication, fornication in this context with Babylon implies a spiritual form of fornication. Spiritual fornication. Now God thinks of his relationship with his people in the context of a marriage. We see that throughout all of the Bible. That's what Hosea's whole message was when he was told to go and marry a harlot. It was a demonstration of God marrying a sinful people. And then as Gomer, the wife of Hosea, kept on going out and committing harlotry and being unfaithful to him, Finally, the message came to him that this is the broken heart of God over a people that is constantly going back to other things, other loves, other pleasures, other affections. That the broken heart of God over the fornication that exists within the lives of his people that are basically cheating on him by having affections, holding on to things or worshiping deities other than him. There are some people that are even called by his name that worship Astra. They worship the God of sex. There are some that worship the God of mammon. Jesus spoke of those that worship mammon or serve mammon, the God of money that they have a higher place of affection within their heart for money than they do for God. They give their life more completely, their energy, their time, their resources, their thoughts, their worry, their anxiety to money rather than casting their cares upon the living God. There are those that worship the God of Atlas, their own bodies. Paul spoke of those whose God is their belly. They live to please and to serve themselves, that they're consumed completely with self. There are those that worship the God of Bacchus, the God of pleasure. It's spiritual fornication. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That your first and foremost affection is to be towards the Lord. That the highest commitment of your life is to be heavenward not towards anything on earth or in its relationships. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't carry on jobs or have a marital relationship or raise a family or do the things that we do. But what are you worshiping? What holds the highest place of affection within your life? Babylon is fallen. All that is in the world, John wrote, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away with its affections and its lust. But him that does the will of God will abide forever. Babylon is fallen. It's not going to last. That deity that promises satisfaction that's so alluring, that calls out to you, that says, indulge in me, worship me, give affection to me. It's not going to last. But the true and the living God is eternal. In his presence are pleasures forevermore. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those that love him. Worship God, says the first angel. Babylon is fallen, says the second angel. And then the third angel gives a harsh warning to those that yet dwell upon the earth. In verse nine, it says that the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb now the fact that this angel is making this proclamation in the ears of the whole world that means that everybody on the planet will be aware of the word that's being spoken and will hear the message that's being proclaimed by this angel It means that they will know that when they take the mark of the beast, that they are giving their allegiance to him and that they are denying Jesus Christ forever. They will realize, they will be aware of the fact, they will not be doing this mistakenly or ignorantly, that they are choosing sides. That in so doing, they are bowing down and agreeing with his, remember in the last chapter, his edict, his law that all nations must bow before him. And that in so doing, they are turning their back forever upon the true and the living God. And they are being told here that to do it will result in their soul being lost forever. It says that they will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That they will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture. That means that it's not going to be watered down when it says without mixture It means that it, there isn't going to be like a little bit of you know Salvation mixed in with it or that it's just simply punitive or corrective in some way that this is something that is without mixture It is the full weight of the wrath of god that will be poured out upon those that take the mark of the beast There will be no mercy shown to them It says into the cup of his indignation Now isn't it interesting that he uses that language? Because where do we see the cup of God's indignation? It was there in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus was praying. And he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And the cup that Jesus was speaking of there in the Garden of Gethsemane is the very cup that will be poured out upon those that take the mark of the beast. The cup of the wrath of the indignation of God that in its full weight without mixture, that that's the cup that Jesus Christ drank willingly on your behalf and mine. That it was for us, for our sake, that he took the penalty for sin. And in exchange, he said, take this cup of my blood, the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you and for the world. It's the cup of fellowship in the New Testament in my blood, the forgiveness of sins, the grace of God extended freely to you for you to receive it as a gift. Jesus took the cup of the indignation, the wrath of God. And then it tells us there that they will be tormented in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. Now notice that it doesn't say in the presence of the church. Or in the presence of the four beasts or of the elders, the 24 elders. But this is in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the lamb. Why? I know that there are many of us, myself included, that we know people that they don't know Jesus at this time. And sometimes the pain of knowing someone who is not yet saved and the thought of them not being in heaven, sometimes you wonder, how can it be heaven if they're not there? How can it be heaven if they are not a partaker of the same thing? They're not there with me in that way. Well, we will not see the torment that they do. It's interesting. There's a verse in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, that says that in that time that when we are there, it says that the former things of this life will not be remembered by us. That there's going to be something there where God is able to kind of delete portions of our memory and things and perhaps faces and events that happened in this time on earth. If not, most of it or all of it will be deleted from our memory. They won't come into mind anymore. They'll be blotted out. And heaven will be heaven. And God will be just and fair in how he deals with those things. But we won't be there to see that. Well, verse 11, it says that the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Now, people struggle with this, and I understand. It, will a God of love, can a God of perfect love send someone to an eternal hell, an eternal torment it says here forever and ever it's the most powerful expression in the greek language to speak of eternity Eis enios post enios and it is final it's forever that's what it says now at the end of the book of revelation it says that those that add to any of the words that are spoken here in this book, to them shall be added the plagues that are written in the book. And then it says to those that take away from the things that are written in the book, to them, their name will be taken out of the book and also, you know, uh, you know their, their, their place in the city and of the blessings of this book, they'll be excluded. So for me to tell you that this is not what this means or not what it says would be a very dangerous thing for me to do. And I hope you wouldn't want me to do that. So we'll leave it just as it says. And it says, here is the patience of the saints and here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. He's saying to us essentially here that at this point, It is better to die if you're in the Lord than it would be to live in the things that are coming or in the times that are on planet earth. And I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud one sat like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Now this is none other than Jesus Christ and what John is seeing here is a heavenly perspective or a heavenly vision of the battle of Armageddon that will be taking place at the end of the tribulation time. It says that another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap for the time has come for thee to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, last week I shared with you the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Remember when Jesus was giving that kingdom, you know, instruction to his disciples. And he said that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And then an enemy came at night and sowed weeds among the wheat. And as it began to grow, the servants noticed that, hey, there's wheat here growing, but somebody has put these weeds in, in there, and the two things are growing together, and it's a corrupt crop that's growing. Do you want us to go in and tear out all of the weeds so that the wheat can grow up uncumbered? And Jesus said that the Lord of the harvest said, no, let it all grow together until the end. And then will the wheat be separated from the weeds, and the wheat will be gathered into the barns, but the tares, the weeds, will be burned with unquenchable fire. And then when he explained and gave the interpretation of the parable, he said that the good seed are the children of the kingdom, and that the weeds are those of the enemy that have been sown among them. And he said that they all grow together, that in any congregation, And any group of people that's gathered together in the name of the Lord, there is both those that are sincere and real and there are those that are phony and hypocrites that have not given their lives to Christ. That in any workplace, in any neighborhood, in any country, there are those that are called and chosen and sealed and saved and there are those that aren't. But at the end, there will be a harvest. And at this time here in the book of Revelation, the rapture has taken place. The church has been lifted from the earth. Israel has been redeemed. The 144,000 have now sealed their testimony there in heaven. The remnant of the Jews that will be saved is safely tucked away, probably in Petra. And the only thing that is left upon planet Earth are those that have rejected Jesus Christ. And have made their decision to follow after the enemy. And at this time now it says that the harvest of the grapes of God's wrath is ripe. And Jesus himself with the sickle and then another angel with a sharp sickle thrust in their sickle and they carry away the grapes or the vine. It's interesting to me that it uses this word vine. I don't think it's a coincidence that it used this word vine. Why? I learned a long time ago to not concern myself with conspiracy theories. I learned that, of course, by being concerned with conspiracy theories. You know, being intrigued and interested in the Illuminati and the Bilderbergers and the Club of Rome and, you know, the role of international banks and bankers and financiers and, you know, the participation of world governments and all of this kind of stuff and and, and trying to uncover this six thousand year old conspiracy to take over the world and i thought i could figure it out you know i've learned since then to just let it be but what this tells me very clearly when it talks about the vine what does the vine do a vine connects one thing to the another and it's used in the context of the sin the fullness of iniquity the weight of of iniquity and filth among men and it's all linked together that the and you know it doesn't take an intelligent person to see that i mean as you listen to the news today and you watch the things that are happening and you watch what's going on financially and you see how things are are shaping up globally we realize we recognize that there is a big huge vine that intertwines all of the corruption and the sin in this whole world and that it's just ripening for judgment And there will come a day when the vine, the ripe, or the grapes are ripe, and the whole thing will be cast into the winepress of the wrath of God. We know who wins in the end, and that's why it doesn't doesn't matter what the conspiracy is. And it doesn't help to get to the bottom of it. God's going to win. The whole cluster of it all is going to be thrown in one foul swoop into the winepress of his wrath. And when that happens, it says in verse 20 that the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse bridles by the space of 1,600 furlongs or about 200 miles. Now the horse's bridle is about four feet high. Now that's from a heavenly perspective. So from a heavenly perspective, John sees grapes and he understands what they represent thrown into this great big winepress. But what he sees in an earthly perspective is blood that floweth out of the winepress four feet high and 200 miles long. Now, there's a very interesting prophecy given to us in Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah writes and he says, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore, art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment." For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation to me, and my fury, it upheld me, and I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Now, that's interesting because Edom or Basra is the place where Petra is, where most likely the Jews will be kept during this time of the tribulation. The battle of Armageddon, where the blood will originate and stem from, is 200 miles in another direction, the valley of Megiddo, where Armageddon will take place. And so some have... suggested that perhaps that from the battle of armageddon there will be so much blood that will flow that for 200 miles four feet deep will be the flow of blood from the literally the, the destruction that will take place in that great battle that we'll see at the end of the tribulation others have suggested that perhaps this 1600 furlongs or 200 miles speaks of 200 square miles which could also fit because that valley of Megiddo that's there outside of the city in Jerusalem, even as it says outside of the city, the valley of Megiddo is about 200 square miles in its breadth and in its length. You've heard, of course, I think everybody's heard that Napoleon, that great warrior, wept when he saw the valley of Megiddo because he said this would be the perfect place to fight a battle. And they said, well, why are you weeping? And he says, because I'm never going to get to fight here but there's coming a day when they will and the blood will flow to the horse's bridle in that time. These are awesome things that we're seeing here in these chapters. It it would be great. I wish I had a joke to tell you or something, you know, to lighten it up a little bit because of just how incredibly awesome and terrible the things are that are coming upon this earth. And certainly as we look around the world today, the world is ripe for judgment. I don't know how much worse how much worse can it get. Jesus said that it would be as it was in the days of Noah. What was happening in the days of Noah? It says that violence filled the earth. What's happening in the earth today, you know that we see. Violence. Terrible violence. It says that there was corruption. That the whole world corrupted that all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. The days of Noah. The corruption runs so deep. I mean, we're facing an election year, right? We're going to find out just how corrupt everybody is. All the saviors. We're going to find out how corrupt all the saviors are, even as we're finding out right now, aren't we? It says in the days of Noah that there was unbridled sexual activity and even perversity. You heard about Arnold, you know. (laughs) The president of the international monetary whatever it is, you know. The man who the world has put over all the financial issues in the world. A man of upright character, right? I read about a teacher in Texas that was accused of being sexually involved with five students. And I mean, these stories, you just there's new ones every day. I just give you the ones that are current right now, but tomorrow there'll be five new ones. I just don't know how much worse it can get. And it's almost become so normal to us that it doesn't even move us anymore. We're just, well, it just kind of is what it is. I'd like to ask you the question as we close. Are you ready? Are you personally ready for Jesus to come and to take his church out? I'm not asking if you want him to. I'm asking if you're ready. Is your life as you look around the world and you recognize and realize the position that it 's in and, and where we are at, are you ready to meet your maker? I want to be ready a debate I was talking to Georgia whether or not I should even share this, but um, this past Saturday night you know we we had kind of a um, a, a false labor you know and um georgia went into labor last thursday and uh just i don't know for several hours she was having these contractions that were about seven minutes apart and so we got excited and uh you know hey the baby's coming and so we went to the hospital and um you know had all our stuff we were all prepared and so she's going and she's having these contractions but they weren't advancing they were every seven minutes about the same intensity and weren't advancing. And so even the midwife, she's like, I don't really know what to tell you. You're kind of right on that line of whether we keep you or we send you home. And so she said, I'll tell you what, why don't you go home and relax and, and just take a hot bath and relax. And if it's real labor by relaxing, it will advance. Or if it's not, it will calm down and it will go away. And so we went home and by the time we got in the car, they stopped and that was it. And since then, that was last Thursday, about a week ago, there has been nothing. Not a contraction, not a move. I mean, the baby's moving, but nothing at all. And so for the past week, basically, we've been staring at George's belly, (laughs) waiting for something to happen, you know. And that's hard. I mean, because you're expecting something so you don't want to like get involved in something i took a couple of days off of work because i didn't want to be down the city when that happened so that means that all the rest of thursday all day friday all day saturday we're just doing nothing but waiting for this thing to happen and then saturday night we went to bed and and i i had a dream and i don't want you to think that i'm spiritual or anything i probably won in my whole life and it was this past saturday and it was just a strange dream and i'm, I'm there and and i was just living life as usual and i'll tell you it was very vivid i mean i was someone said that they had tickets to an mma event you know mixed martial arts or something that they were free and all i had to do was come get them and i'm not a, a mixed martial arts fan but i know people who are so in my dream this is all fake you know I'm, I'm going all right well i'll get them and so i'm making these arrangements and i'm going here and there and i'm trying to work all this out and then i see this little girl laughing She's just laughing. And so I I stopped, and I asked her, I said, what are you laughing at? And she said, look at that bee. And so I looked, and I saw it, and in my dream, I knew exactly what it was. It was one of the locusts that described there back in Revelation in the trumpets, those locusts that torment people for five months during the tribulation. And I knew what it was. And, I, and, and then somebody came around and said, Why are you laughing? And then they ripped the cover off of an air duct that were there. And then a flood of those things came out and just began to consume everything. And and I'm watching this happen. And I realized at that point that I was dreaming. And that basically means you wake up, right? So I, I wake up. And it was like 3.24 AM or something like that. And a storm came through out physically a real storm came through outside from the west to the east the wind kind of whipped up under the valley and came right up against our house blew the curtains i mean we heard it and and my daughter sarah came in because she was having a nightmare so georgia woke up i woke up the storm came in and my dream ended all this converged all at this one moment and it was freaky you know probably just because it was three twenty-four in the morning you know but i was troubled by this because I'm I'm, I'm in this dream, and I'm just doing all these useless things. And in the middle of me trying to get all these useless things done, this judgment comes upon and begins to consume. And I began to see my family members getting carried away in the judgment. And I began to see all the wasted time and wasted energy that I give my life to on such a consistent basis. Even though I know that all of these things are coming and that the time is so incredibly short. So I got up, and this that's really rare. That's never happened. You know, even when I wake up 20 minutes early and I hear the Lord say, Go read my word, I, I always go back to sleep. But I got up. I said, Yeah, I I don't wanna I, I don't wanna miss this. I believe that this is from the Lord. So I went up and I went downstairs, and I just began to repent for all of the wasted time, wasted energy, and waste that's in my life because of just whatever happens. And as I was there, and again, please don't think I'm spiritual, but I was just praying this in and trying to, 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 to not lose whatever it was, you know. And I'd been playing catch with my son earlier earlier, you know, in the day, and, and as he threw the ball, it rolled on the ground and went underneath a whole batch of wild roses, you know, the big thorny bushes, and we had to fish it out with a bat and so I'm awake now, I'm not sleeping and I'm sitting there thinking and as I'm there and I'll call it a vision because I don't know what else to call it, all of a sudden I saw myself crawling right next to this whole big, you know, patch of this wild rose, these thorns and I was there and I saw and there was something in inside and it was alluring to me and so I, I said, you know, I can get that. All I have to do is crawl in through this opening and I could get that out of there. And so I did it. I crawled into this thing, and I saw it, and I got it. But then as soon as I got it, there was something else just a little bit further in. And I said, I could get that too. Look, there's a passageway. I just have to... And I began to move around, and I grabbed a hold of that too. And then and then I saw something else. And, and then there was something else. And meanwhile, I, I'm not being harmed. I mean, hey, look, I'm inside this, this big, huge patch of these thorns, and nothing's hurting me, nothing's bothering me. And, and all of a sudden, I realized what happened to me, that there was a time in my life when it was nothing more than just me and my wife and, you know, the small family and Jesus. You know, we had responsibilities, we had jobs, we had, uh, you know, our, our hopes and ambitions, but somewhere along the way, we saw something. We said, you know, if we just crawl into this little thorn covering, we could have this. And then there was something else. Hey, if we just crawl a little bit more, we can have this. And what we began to do is build this little kingdom amongst the thorns. What does Jesus say about the thorns? He says that they choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And I began to realize for that brief moment just how choked the word had become in my own life. Because of the pursuits and the busyness and just the cares of this life. Now, I didn't come out of that saying, well, I'm changing everything. Because, I, you know, we've all done that. That doesn't work. It's not real. But I said, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? He said, just follow me. Be a real Christian. Get back in my word. Not to teach it, but to do it. When there's something to do and to obey, obey. Where there's a place where you're to surrender and yield, surrender and yield. Yield. And I'll lead your life. It's a funny thing because you know Georgia said, "Well, I shared it with her, obviously," and she said, "Well, what does it mean? What are we supposed to do?" I, thought, I don't know. <laughs> because it, it really is. It's like that. It's like that. I know I'm way over time here, but it's like that. You know, that that false labor. I, I know that baby's coming. And so therefore I don't want to get involved in anything because I know that baby's coming I don't want to go to work. I don't want to start a project at home I want to just wait because I know what the labor pains are here. And So you're just sitting there And nothing's happening So then you occupy, okay, I gotta occupy gotta do something to occupy So you start a project or you go to work and then you don't want the baby to come right you're like don't come now i'm doing something or i'm not home or whatever and there's this conflict and we all have that conflict don't we we're supposed to live as though jesus christ could come at any minute and we're supposed to occupy and they're mutually exclusive because when you're waiting because the labor pains are upon us you don't feel like doing anything else but yet we're called to occupy so you start doing things and you say lord if you come right now it's a distraction. My point is, this is hard, isn't it? What do we do? The answer is simple. The answer is, follow me. Follow Jesus. Put your feet down in the steps that he lays before you. Be obedient in the small things. Allow him to make your life productive and fruitful and love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. He is coming soon even at the doors. May there be a revival in our hearts that we might have a chance maybe just to reach one more person or to just win one more conquest in his name or gain just a little bit more ground against the enemy. And may our testimony be in our last times that we lived the life, that we were devoted, that we gave our all. May God give us wisdom. Let's all stand. Father, we just thank you for your revealed truth. And I do pray, Lord, that we would be awakened, that we would recognize the day that's upon us right now, the times that we live in, and that we as your church would respond accordingly. I pray that you would clear our minds. I pray that you would give us discernment over those areas of our life that have become a distraction where we're living too much out of balance in our preparation for the future or in our affection for this world or even in an area of sin or compromise. Please revive us, Lord. Please light the fire in us again. Fill our lamps with oil. and May our lamps be trimmed and our lights be burning. Like unto those servants who wait for their Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for salvation. Thank you, Father, for your great love. That you weren't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We pray for our family members, for our neighbors, our co-workers. Lord, may we see somehow and care about their eternal destiny. Please help us. Thank you for this time tonight. Please, Lord, move in our hearts as we sing this last song. In Jesus' name.